verses 24 through 26, the ones that we have been focused on for several weeks now, beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is God's Word. Now let's pray that He will bless His Word and help us to understand it. Father, we had probably simply just assumed that we would have another opportunity to hear your word, to have you speak to us. Father, we're, we're very grateful. And the benefit of your word is, is far greater than we can even comprehend as we read it. But we acknowledge that without your Holy Spirit, we can't even understand what it means. We can't understand the eternal value. And so we ask that in your mercy you would send your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word and, and, and apply these things to our hearts and to our lives that we might leave with a different perspective and a different attitude and with new affections for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Throughout World War II, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime, in addition to the typical approach to warfare, which is killing, capturing, destroying, adopted another, for the most part, ancient scheme of battle as a way to, as it were, rub the noses of their enemies into the reality of, of defeat. Now many of you have probably at least heard of, if not seen, the film Monuments Men. And that film was made and created after the true story of a group of men who were sent to rescue, recapture the plunder of Hitler throughout his, his exploits. And what was that plunder? It was art. Hitler and the Nazis, as they would go through and as they would, would destroy these different cities, they would steal art. And it was recorded that after the war, as they were sort of counting the, the, the recovered pieces, it says they recovered 6,577 paintings, 2,300 drawings or watercolors, 954 prints, 137 pieces of sculpture, 129 pieces of arms and armor, 79 baskets of objects, various objects, 484 cases of objects thought to be different archives, 78 pieces of furniture, 122 tapestries, between 1,200 and 1,700 cases of, of apparently books, and then 283 cases of contents that they, they didn't know what they were yet. 
Now here's the question. Why was Hitler so adamant about stealing and destroying these pieces of art in war? And I think there are two reasons. The first is that those that would be kept would act as symbols to display his power. Not unlike the Philistines when they stole the Ark of the Covenant from the, uh, from the Israelites. Basically, you display all of this and you can say, yeah, we destroyed all of these places and look, we, we plundered their goods. This was sort of an exacerbation or a worsening of the pain of defeat. The second reason was that that art that was eventually destroyed was the greatest form, the most efficient way to really, truly destroy a people. Because art reflects culture. And if you destroy art, you destroy the culture from which it came. You destroy its, their history. And so when you destroy their history, and if you do away with all of the people then it's as if they never existed at all. And that's what the, the Nazis wanted to do with, with those who, who didn't meet their standards of, of uh, the Aryan race. Now what does all of that tell us about art? It tells us that art, even though maybe the majority of us, the majority of society, would not uh, display a whole lot of interest in the arts per se, art is still... Valuable. It carries some sort of a, a worth with it. Just imagine if we had to grow up and were educated with no books, no pictures, no historical records, no, no nothing representing the past at all, no music. We had none of that. We just we just came into being, and all we had was the current culture to teach us and to train us. See, these things carry with them a great value in not only explaining the original culture, but in shaping and defining our culture. And it doesn't say much about our current culture when you look at the art that's being produced today, the, the art and, and the music and things like that. So for Hitler to steal and or destroy these pieces of art was to hold a great, a great power, a great sway over his enemies. And for those that were called the Monuments Men... Recovery of the art was part and parcel to victory. We've got to get the art back. Now, keep all of that in the back of your head as we come to this text of Scripture. And the main point of the last question that's asked in verse 26, I believe the main point that Jesus is trying to convey is the inestimable value of a soul. Now last week we began to look at the, the main heading of this verse, the rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. Jesus gives two questions, and because they are rhetorical, because the answer is so obvious that once we reason through them, we see that He's actually making statements of truth. He's teaching some sort of truth. Now the first question deals with the options of discipleship, and you have two. It's very simple. You follow Jesus, you get eternal life. If you seek to gain the world, you get eternal death. You lose your soul. That was the first question. Now one might ask at this point, so I lose my soul. So what? It's just a soul, right? 
See, our, our misunderstanding, our lack of knowledge in the area of anthropology might tempt us to think that the loss of a soul is really not the worst possible thing that could happen. And I wonder if, if for some of us, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, but perhaps in moments of doubting your salvation or in times of intense conviction of sin, in moments where you look at your life and you say, you know what, I really don't crave Christ in this moment, you're tempted to think, maybe, in the worst case scenario, if I have been deceived... Because we're discerning. Most of us are fairly discerning. We see all of those or many of those around us who are just tricked and duped and deceived or they think what we believe is just, just out there, crazy. And so we might be tempted to think, well, what if I have been tricked? What if I am wrong? And then we chase that rabbit and we think, well, worst case scenario, I'll lose my soul. Eternal separation from God, maybe it's not that bad. See, we don't really understand the soul. And a lot of what we think about, especially in terms of eternal punishment, is just physical. And Jesus says you lose your soul. Well, maybe the loss of the soul isn't that bad. Well, I hope to dispel that kind of thinking today as we look at this question. The last part of verse 26. Or, what shall a man give in return for his soul? With this second question, Jesus, one commentator says, Jesus aggravates the first question. The first question is rhetorical. Rhetorical. The answer is obvious. The second question is again rhetorical. The answer again is so obvious that it's just like he's putting his thumb on a sore and mashing a little harder to, to press this point. And it, so his topic is not altogether different. He wants to show us just how foolish it would be to refuse to follow Him. Notice that He says, What shall a man give in return for his soul? Just like last week, we have the language of commerce. Remember last week, we, we had this picture of, of the ledger. And on one side, there's gain. And on one side, there's loss. And at the bottom, we, we try to calculate the benefit, and the benefit is there is none. He, he continues that language of commerce, and the sense of this question, what shall a man give in return, is, is, is basically this. What does a man have that would be of equivalent value to exchange for his soul in the situation that he discovers that he's gained the whole world, and he's lost his soul? Now you have the whole world, which we know nobody will ever get, but Say you do have the whole world and you realize it and now you want to trade back. What, what could you give in exchange? You have one soul. You can create no more souls. In the case that your soul is lost, how would you buy it back? The answer, again, I hope is obvious. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. You don't have it. You, you can't pay for it. You have nothing that is worth that much. Let's just say you had gained the whole world and you say, okay, I'll, I'll give the whole world back. It's too late. The whole world is not worth the value of your soul. Because remember, that trade left you no profit. It's not a good trade. It's not an even trade. 
And so these two rhetorical questions, they are reversed into statements of truth. And here are the statements of truth. First, you benefit absolutely nothing for all of eternity if you gain the world at the expense of following Christ. Second question turns into this truth. You lose the most valuable possession you own, and that for all of eternity, if you do not deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. So the doctrine here, in other words, is this. A single soul is of inestimable value and should be considered as such. When you're counting the cost, would I trade my soul for the world? Will I have this soul? How much is it worth? It's an inestimable number. Now we've often heard this. If you were the only sinner who ever lived, Christ would have died for you. Now, if we're honest, we have no way of biblically verifying that statement whatsoever. It's, it's not biblical. That type of crass individualism just doesn't exist. So we can't say, well, that's true or that's false. It's just not, it's not, a, it's not a biblical theme. But other people will go to the other extreme of removing the value of the individual in order to exalt the whole. The, the focus then becomes the, the body, the church. And so individuals become less important than the whole, a type of Christian communism. Here's the logical problem. The whole is made up of individuals, single People. The whole of the church is the collective body for which Christ died. And it is made up of individuals. So without individuals, there is no body. And without the body, there is no individuals. Without a, a foreknowledge of the body, there are no individuals. So you can't separate these two ideas. If the collective body necessitated the death of Christ to buy her, then that means every single individual also requires the death of Christ for ransom. Jesus said it this way. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You see, Jesus does not draw a distinction between the mass quantity of souls and every single individual soul. So when I say the doctrine is the inestimable value of a single soul, the... the, the the point here is that we don't argue, well, a single soul is not worth as much as three souls or four souls or twelve souls or, or a countless number of souls. You can't make that distinction because Jesus doesn't make that distinction. We are talking about one single soul. And so the doctrine then being the inestimable, inestimable value of a single soul, then I want to press that truth that a soul is of a value that cannot be calculated. I want to press that under three headings. Number one, where shouldn't we look to determine the value of a soul? 
Number two, where should we look to determine the value of a soul? And that's going to be the bulk of our time. And then number three, how then shall we live in light of this doctrine? The inestimable value of a soul. So first, where shouldn't we look? Where do we not look? to try to calculate the value of a soul. Well, this will be quick. We do not look at external appearance. We do not say, well, well, that person is attractive and that person is unattractive. Therefore, the attractive person's soul is worth more. We can't go there. Yes, praise the Lord. Number two, we cannot look at worldly value. Like last week, we talked about the, the richest people in the world. You got um, Bill Gates and... Um, the Ortega guy and Warren Buffett, the three most, uh, the three richest men in the world. Well, you can't look at that and say, well, their soul must be value, more valuable than, than someone else's soul. You can't pit the rich against the poor. We can't say, well, all of the rich souls live over here in this area, so let's, let's plant a church over there because... If those people even give a little bit, well, that's going to be more than if we planted a church over here and we see this happening. Churches won't say it, but in their actions, they say these souls are a little bit more valuable to the kingdom than those poor souls. Third, we can't look at usefulness by worldly standards. This would be like physical capabilities. If that were the case, then the souls of infants would have no value. The souls of the elderly would have no value. The souls of the handicapped and the infirm would have no value. And our world believes this. And that's why they say, well, they're just babies, kill them. Well, they're just the elderly, euthanize them. They're just the handicapped, do away with them. They believe that, but we don't. We believe in the inestimable value of every single soul. And so we cannot look at the temporal. We cannot look at the finite. We can't look by outward earthly standards. We can't look at the subjective. Well, they're good looking and they're not good looking. Well, they're poor and they're rich. Well, what country do you live in? That's going to be different also. We do not look with a, a mind set on the things of man to determine the worth of a soul. So then we come to number two then. Where should we look to determine the value of a soul? Where do we go? What factors should we or could we consider to determine the value of a soul? Well, I've listed five here that we're going to look at. Five factors that we, can, we should consider in determining the value of a soul. First, Consider the creator of a soul. Consider the creator of a soul. It's an obvious fact of history and even current culture that the dignity of a specific artist is, is one of the foremost factors in determining the value of a piece of art. So if I, anybody in this room, painted a picture that exactly represented the Mona Lisa, exactly. It would be worth about as much as the, the stuff that it took to, to make it. It would be worth the, the cost of the canvas, maybe, maybe the cost of the paint, little more than the materials because we don't have that dignity. But if in some 
dusty attic somewhere, a piece of artwork was found, had never been seen by the outside world, had never been analyzed or, or, or anything. They found it, and to most of us, we would say, that looks like the artwork of a toddler. But they looked in the bottom of that picture, and it had the name, the, the, the signature of a Picasso or a Rembrandt or a Michelangelo or whoever, and it was analyzed and it was verified to be legit, it would immediately be priceless. Why? Because of who painted it. Because of its creator. And because of the, the dignity that has been placed on that creator by the culture. Now consider the intrinsic worth of the creator of the soul. The creator of the human soul has a value that is inherent. His dignity is not dependent on any outside perspective. His majesty is not dictated by cultural approval. We know this because the creator of the human soul is God Himself. Again, we read this last week, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God Himself formed the body and then gave the soul, the life of man. Or again, we could look at Zechariah chapter 12. Here, the prophet is, is describing the Lord. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel thus declares the Lord. And then he describes the Lord using three of the Lord's works. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. In other words, here's God. He made everything. He made galaxies and, and stars. Our sun, the diameter of our sun is 1.4 million kilometers across. That's our sun. The largest star we've discovered is 1,800 times bigger than our sun. God made that. And He also made subatomic particles that we can't even see. Now all of that, when we think about it, we begin to contemplate that and the, the, the sea creatures deep down in the oceans and the, the large animals that we see on the earth, we would say, those are far more majestic than us. I mean, look at the stars. But to none of these did God give the breath of life. To none of these did He give of His own Spirit in some way that causes us to live. That is to say, the God in whom is life, the God who upholds the universe, the God who does whatever He pleases and none can stay His hand or, or say to Him, why have you made me like this? The God who holds the heart of the King in His hand like a little drop of water and He does with it as He wills. The God who spoke and out of that speech came all of human history. That God breathes into every human being the breath of life, the soul. He creates that soul. So what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. How are you going to pay for that? The inherent dignity of the artist of the soul renders it of inestimable value. You can't pay for that. So consider the creator of the soul. Second, create, or consider the rarity of a soul. It would not be contested 
that the value of a piece of art is also based very largely on the fact that there's only one of them. Again, the Mona Lisa is estimated to be worth $780 million. But you can go to a museum somewhere and buy postcards with the Mona Lisa printed on it for a couple bucks. Why is that? Because the original is rare. It's the only one. Postcards are printed by the tens of thousands every day. They're not rare. And the original, the original is. Consider then the rarity of a soul. Jesus says, what shall a man... This is one man. He's using one man as an example. No man in particular, but every individual in general could claim this about themselves. Anyone can say this about their soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Whose soul is it? It's, it's, it belongs to the man. Every person has a soul. Nobody else has your soul, and you don't have anybody else's soul. God doesn't recycle souls. You have one. So meditate on that. Of the billions of people who have lived throughout the ages, of the countless billions of created human beings that never made it out of the womb, their mothers never even knew that they were with child, every single one of them has been given a soul, and they're all different. None of them are yours, and yours belongs to none of them. Consider how rare that is. There's none like it. There's never been one like it. There will never be another like it. It's the only one like it. Consider the rarity of a soul. It's of inestimable value. Third, consider the striving of Satan to destroy a soul. The striving of Satan to destroy a soul. Why was, why was Hitler so adamant about stealing that art? Again, it was because... If he could keep it, it would be symbolic of his power. One author writes, quote, Displaying another's greatest works in the empire's capital was the ultimate demonstration of dominance. You get that art, you hold it up and you say, look what I got. It demonstrates dominance. Another one, they said, that art which would be destroyed would stand as, as the way to totally destroy a people. The greater the effort to destroy the art displays the greater value that art had with regard to the culture. Hitler wasn't sneaking into homes of Jewish people and taking little colorings off of their refrigerator. He was stealing the most valuable, priceless pieces of art that reflected the mind and the culture of the artists and the societies from which that art came so that he could obliterate the society because those things were valuable to the society. And they reflected the heart and the, the mind of the artists from which they came. It's the same with the soul of man, except how much more so? I mean, the soul of man has been created by God in the very image of God. The soul of man exists to reflect the glory of God. So if Satan can capture and destroy souls, he's simply displaying his power over the very apex of God's creation. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief came to steal and kill and destroy what? Well, Jesus says, I came that they 
may have life. What does Satan want to steal and kill and destroy? It's, it's people. But is Jesus saying Satan wants to get your physical body and break it up and destroy? No, he's saying he wants your soul. Satan is trying to get souls. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan, again, very interesting, Satan has requested permission to sift Peter like wheat. Now, does that mean Satan's got a big sifter and he's going to shake Peter around? No, he wants to test his faith. He wants to destroy every bit of faith that Peter has. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you that it won't fail. See, Satan wants Peter's soul. And Peter learned a valuable lesson, I believe, because in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, as Peter saying, the devil is an actual lion. He wants to chew you up and eat you. No, he's saying he wants to devour your soul. He wants to destroy it. And this is what the enemy of our souls has always done. God creates the universe. He creates the earth to be the habitation of the apex of His creation. He creates man. He makes him in His image, gives him a soul to worship Him. And then Satan comes into the scene to destroy the souls of men, to tempt Eve, to overthrow the work of God. Remember when Satan was testing Job, God said, you are trying to incite me against Job. Because Satan knew, if I can get Job's faith to fail and get him to curse God, then God will then have to be the enemy of Job and he will destroy Job's soul. So this is all Satan cares about. This is all he does. He knows he's defeated. He knows he's already lost. Now he's simply taking as much of the art the souls of men, and trying to take it with him as he plunges into hell. So for all of human history, all that Satan has ever been doing is going to and fro, up and down on the earth, trying to devour souls, destroy souls, wreak havoc on souls. And he sends out his demonic forces to do the same. He doesn't care about your flesh and blood. He doesn't care about meat and bones. He cares about your soul. He wants your eternal soul. So we can see then that the great effort to which Satan has gone to destroy souls displays that the souls are valuable. He does this because he wants to display some sort of dominance over the kingdom of God. And so we know if he's willing to go through all of that trouble for souls, then they must be valuable. Number four, if we want to determine the worth of a soul, consider the work of God to save a soul. I believe this is the, the thrust of our, our determining this value. Consider the covenant of redemption. We, we know of the decree in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance. Then Jesus comes along and He says, All that the Father has given me will come to me. Titus talks about the eternal life that was promised before the ages began. We know that in eternity past, God the Father chose a people to be a loved gift to the Son. Now, are we to assume 
that this people chosen before the foundation of the world, given to the Son as a love gift, to live for eternity with the Son as His bride, was just a, a promised mass of meat? Like, I'm going to give you some flesh and bones. Was it just an innumerable quantity of corpses that would just stand forever and, and bump into each other? No. God the Father is saying, I have chosen souls and I will give them my image so that they can worship, so that for all of eternity they will exist to worship the Son. Then in the Garden of Eden, God comes along after they sin and He says, or before they sin, He promised them, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now was God saying, if you disobey, that bag of flesh and bones is going to stop working? No. He's saying your soul will die. God's not a liar. When they ate that fruit, they died. Their soul still existed. It was still within them, but it was separated from the only true source of life, which is God. It was considered a dead soul. And then in the Proto-Evangelium, God comes and He promises the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, I'm going to send the seed of a woman from this very lineage who will reverse the fall of man into sin, and will redeem souls. And then we come to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we have the, the covenants of promise that bring us to Israel as a nation. Why did they exist? So that they could bring forth the lineage of the tribe of Judah that would eventually give birth to the promised seed. And then Jesus Christ is born in human flesh, and what does He say? He came to seek and save that which was lost. Not bodies, souls. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's not just physical bodies. That's the life of the soul. As Jesus went to the cross and He was lifted up, He said, now is the ruler of this world cast out. The devil, the enemy of our souls, is cast out. He's no longer able to deceive the nations any longer. He's bound. Jesus, as it were, entered into the house where all of his property had been stored and Jesus binds up the strong man and as the stronger man, he plunders his property at the cross. He takes those souls. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. You can't pay for a soul. But what was God willing to give in return for the souls of men? He gave the life of His own Son to redeem souls. Then Jesus is raised from the dead. He conquers death. Is that just physical death? No, it's, it's spiritual death. He defeats spiritual death so that we can be raised to spiritual life. And that's the first resurrection. Our coming from spiritual death to spiritual life. Then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and He sends the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He applies the redemption that has been accomplished to those souls. And then He empowers people to preach the gospel so that souls will be saved. And He fills churches so that souls will be strengthened and encouraged and sanctified and prepared for eternity. And then someday, Christ is going to return. And our dead bodies... We'll reunite with our souls and we will spend eternity on a physical earth with physical bodies 
that have been glorified will be with Him in the presence of God and the Lamb forever. And in all of eternity, we will spend those countless years worshiping and loving and adoring and praising God forever. Now, can plants do that? No. Can animals do that? No. Only people created in the image of God with the souls that He's given us can worship God in this way. So you see, all of redemptive history, the the entire plan, all that God has been doing has been to redeem souls so that He could then present them to His Son. So we can see from the work of God in saving souls that they are of inestimable value. God did not place a limit. What's the cost? My son? And he paid the price for our souls. And lastly, if we want to determine the worth of a soul, then we we might consider the joy that is described when a soul is rescued. This will be up on the screen, but I just want to read several big passages of Scripture. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now see, when we, when we get a glimpse into heaven, what we see is nothing short of a God-centered, Spirit-filled scene of constant worship and adoration. Again, in Revelation chapter 4, the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Again, endless, ceaseless praise and exaltation of God. Now what could possibly cause a pause in that endless praise? Well, listen to this from Luke chapter 15. The words as Jesus tells a parable. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so 
I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so. In other words, in that same way, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it seems as if in the midst of this endless sea of worship and adoration, and I say this reverently, that from time to time, the angels who worship God will turn their attention to pronounce, to perhaps an announcing angel who will shout with a loud voice, another soul saved, another one redeemed. May the Lamb have His reward. And I would imagine as they turn and they hear that one has repented, they will well up with joy. And then they will turn back to God and say, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Because there's joy. Now how can these beings who are forever in the presence of God, constantly worshiping, thrilled and, 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 just, and, and filled with His presence and His glory, ever have their... How can they even have room for any more joy, any more worship? And yet Jesus says there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, one soul that will repent. One single sinner. If the angels in heaven who remain in endless, boundless adoration in the presence of God the Almighty have the remotest ounce of joy in their souls over the salvation of a single sinner, then we must conclude that the soul, one soul, is of inestimable value. Heading number three. How then shall we live? in light of the inestimable value of a soul because we know that priceless things are, are treated differently than common things. Art is guarded in museums. Archaeological digs are, are uncovered with the greatest ease and the tenderness and care of, of brushes and, and, and just air blowing the sand off of them. People of great importance are protected by bodyguards. If that's the case and we know it to be true, then how should we treat people whose souls are of inestimable value. How should we treat them? If we believe that a single soul, across the board, not based on what they look like or how much money they have, is of, a, an, of an inestimable value, then how should we treat them? Well, I believe that we should pursue the salvation of souls with the same vigor and determination that our own soul, soul or as our own souls have been sought out. The same vigor and determination. So with our spouses. Our spouses are not just warm bodies. They're not just friends. They're not just someone we can finally share life with. They're not just helpers. They're not just there for our pleasure and our happiness. They are souls. Our spouses are souls. And Scripture is clear that we are to seek the salvation of the souls of our spouses. 
Seek the sanctification of the soul of your spouse. Men, it's your job to prepare your wife for her meeting with the Lord. That's your job. Get her ready because she will be judged as well. She will stand before God. It is your job to wash her with the water of the Word, to pray for her and with her, to catechize her and disciple her and train her and prepare her. Not just hang out and say, well, I'm glad I've got somebody around. I'm glad I've got someone to take care of things around the house, but to prepare her. You've been put in her life as a sanctifying means to prepare her to meet God. Wives, your job is to lift up and encourage your husbands and, and draw out of him the strengths that God has given him so that he can be sanctified and so that he can be prepared to give an account for his leadership. When it comes to our children, they're not just playmates. They're not just little bundles of joy. They are that, but that's not all that they are. They're not just new lives that we can now live vicariously through and give them all of the things we didn't have. And they're not just trophies to show off and say, well, I believe in having children, so I look at all my children. They're souls. God creates souls. And we are to seek their salvation. We are to train them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. We are to disciple them. We should be catechizing them and training them in the doctrines of Scripture. The Bible is very clear that children are like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. And our job is to train them up, make disciples so that we can continue the spread of the godly seed of Abraham and the gospel can be preached to the ends of the earth. It's not just, well, we like having a big family. No, it's our job is to make disciples. Literally, make disciples. Give birth to disciples and train them up so that there will be disciples over the face of the whole earth to preach the gospel and then we send them out. When it comes to strangers, they're not just people who are involved in the lives of other people. They're not just bodies who happen to bump into those bodies over there, but not mine because, well, I don't know them. They're souls. And so we must love them. We must seek their salvation. We must see other people as embodied souls who will spend eternity somewhere. We need to get that through our heads. We should be soul winners preaching the gospel when it comes to unreached people groups they're not just emotional ploys unreached peoples are not just photographic missionary fodder that we can put on display and say well look what they look like now give me some money so I can go give them water or build them a house they're not just bodies who need shelter and food and clothing they are souls and we are to be about the business of seeing that the gospel is preached and disciple is made of panta ta ethne all of the peoples every ethnic group of the earth because they're souls if a single human soul has been created by the god of the universe to display His glory. It's the only one of its kind in all of eternity. It's worthy of the fight that that ancient serpent, the devil, has been putting up to destroy them. If it necessitates the incarnation, death, resurrection of the only Son of God, and if all of heaven rejoices when one of them repents, then should we not say, 
I think they're pretty valuable. This soul is of inestimable value. Should we not also then seek to feed our own souls? To worship and to study the Word of God, to pray and to spend time with Him. The Puritans would call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. Because Monday through Saturday you would do all of your business and your shopping and your preparing and and on the Lord's Day, you would sit and you would simply dine. You, could, you would walk through, as it were, all of the various means of grace. And you could just gather all of these things and, and feed your soul on worship. Because worship is food for the soul. So, discipleship or following Jesus requires that we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. If we seek to save this temporal life, then we'll lose our eternal life. If we give up this life for the sake of Christ, then we will have eternal life. To gain the world at the expense of eternity is of no benefit, and it is of no benefit because your soul is worth more than all of the possessions of the world. Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom the soul of another man. But in Revelation chapter 5, we read this, as they worshipped the Lamb, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The precious, priceless blood of Jesus not only ransomed a soul, He ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And if, if Christ is that precious, that His blood was worthy of that purchase, and He considered that purchase worthy of His blood, then surely we can begin to see the inestimable value of a soul. So as we come to the Lord's table, not only do we participate in the body and the blood of Christ, and therefore receive food for our souls, but we proclaim the sufficiency of the ransom price given for souls, the life of the Son of God. So as the elements are passed, examine yourself and ask yourself, has my soul been redeemed? If it has, you say, my soul has been redeemed, then, then come and dine with the Redeemer.